So I was waiting to, for the ruckus to build. Cool. We're going to start a new lesson today. It's good to see everybody. Glad to have the bikers on board. I hope we don't have any ruckus going on before we're finished, but we'll do our best. Uh, I'm going to start us uh, in prayer, if we would. Lord God, we just uh, we come this day to uh, hear your word and to just let it uh, teach us, Lord, to let it surround us and fill us, that we would uh, seek understanding in it, Lord, that uh, it would give us application uh, for our lives. And uh, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would go before and uh, step in and fill in for my inadequacies. But I pray that, uh, Lord, that your name would be glorified in our in our discussion, in our studies this morning. And in your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. I'm going to, we're going to start off uh, today in 2 Thessalonians. I taught 1 Thessalonians a while back, a few, a few weeks back. And uh, we're going to pick it up in 2 Thessalonians. I like to call this, my subtitle is uh, An Exemplary Church Under Fire, Part 2. And uh, just to get the lay of the land, I'd like to just read, <clears throat> it's three chapters, I'd like to read the first chapter completely through, and then we'll take some time and come back and look at the individual verses. It's quite likely that we won't finish that today, but we'll uh, at least get started. All right, second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, the salutation. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you're suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Now we spent some time reviewing the... Uh, historical context when we went through 1 Thessalonians a while back. And uh, regarding the historical context, it, you, if you recall, Thessalonica is a city in Macedonia 
which would, would be present-day Greece, excuse me, and uh, that city was and is still a thriving region, a region of commerce, and it's, located, it's because of its location primarily as a seaport on, on the Aegean Sea uh, in what's called the Thermaic Gulf. But we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at that uh, this, this time around since we've already looked at it. But for a biblical background regarding Paul's mission there, we can find a lot of that information in Acts chapter 17. And just by way of reminder, I think I'll go ahead and read uh, Acts 17, just the first four vo uh, verses to put us in the right uh, picture. Acts 17, uh, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, excuse me, Apolli Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Quote, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So we remember that Paul went to uh, Macedonia, specifically Thessalonica, and this was on his second missionary journey. And uh, they were very successful. After three Sabbaths, though, of teaching in the synagogue, a mob was kind of uh, uh, enraged, and they ultimately chased Paul and his cohorts out of town. And uh, what followed after that, as I say, they were very successful. They had a lot of disciples come to know the Lord in Thessalonica. Uh, but the conditions after Paul left uh, deteriorated rapidly uh, and became very dangerous for Christians. The believers there were suddenly under severe trials and persecutions. And uh, in hearing of this, Paul could stand it no longer. He was traveling. He went first, I believe, to Berea and then Athens, and he ends up in Corinth. And as he hears about the troubles going on in Thessalonica, he decides to send Timothy back to check on them, to uh, cater, uh, to uh, uh, disciple them, to minister to the believers there, and to bring back a report. Well, Timothy uh, did bring a, back a report to Paul, and that, that was while he was in Corinth, and it was a good report. The, Thessalon the Thessalonian church was standing strong amid, amid their trials, and they were giving evidence of authentic faith in Christ. And that's when Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians from Corinth. And that was uh, a book that's very rich in teachings. And uh, that Paul, he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. He felt that what he was teaching was very foundational for new believers, uh, for their discipling, and for their maturation. And I would say that interestingly, prophecy regarding end times, what we call eschatology, was front and center. In that book. In fact, Christ's return is mentioned in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians. If you remember, we reviewed one of the greatest chapters on the rapture of the church when we looked at the chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, the, the removal of the church. And uh, then we went on into chapter 5, and we saw that Paul was giving a sequence, basically, of end times events. And, and in it, he showed that the rapture was to precede what was known uh, to be the day of the Lord, which includes the, the tribulation period. Now, this second uh, 
epistle to the Thessalonians was written shortly after the first letter, probably within a few weeks or months. And that would date it around A.D. 51 or 52. So along with uh, the epistle to the Galatians, these are the first epistles uh, that were recorded as uh, the New Testament was being canonized. So there's a question then. Why would Paul feel a need to write uh, to the Thessalonians again, a second letter, what was going on that he would uh, feel a, an urgency to write back to them so early? Any ideas? He was, he'd gotten word uh, that there was some trouble, okay? He wasn't under obligation to write. As I said, he'd already written uh, to them once. And I'll just say this up front. Paul had a very special place in his heart for the Thessalonian church. Uh, he, he cared for them a great deal. But he heard that there was circulating amongst them a letter, a forged letter. Uh, it was either a letter or some message somehow had reached these, the Thessalonian church. And it was very disheartening. Uh, and it was claiming to be from Paul. Uh, and in the letter, uh, it was saying that the day of the Lord had begun. It had already started. That and all the awful uh, trials and persecution that were to come with it. And... The Thessalonian church was in it. Very disheartening. Now, we must remember the background for this church is that they were under persecution. They were under trials. They, they were having a hard time. Lots of affliction. So, here we have this situation. In the midst of their trials, and with this letter circulating, they began to wonder, were they in the day of the Lord? They were thinking that. So, this brings to my mind a couple of things. Number one, the situation itself that they were in should pause us to stop. It did. It paused me to stop and think about our situation today. I don't know about you, but I feel like this generation, this culture of ours, our country, has entered into one of the most corrupt and degenerative, immoral states that we've ever been in. I think we see government overreach daily that just blows our mind. Uh, we're witnessing all the time just bizarre, uh, incomprehensible, godless activities. It's strange. You know, uh, we have, we have an, a national medical organization that presently is not allowed to tell a person that their child is a boy or girl at birth. That's crazy. It's crazy. And uh, it just never stops. And so I'm feeling like, man, this is nuts. And then uh, it's not just here. It's on a global level. These times that we're in, these upside-down, topsy-turvy times that we're living in. And yet, I have never once thought I was in the day of the Lord. It's never occurred to me that this was the day of the Lord. I know it isn't. But the Thessalonian believers, they had direct teaching from Paul telling them that, that of, the, of the order of things as it was to be. And yet, their persecutions and their afflictions were so bad at such a level that they were no longer sure what to believe. And this, for me, puts into perspective the times in which we're living. You know, uh, and that it's not really as bad as, as all that when you think about it in perspective. Now, the second point that, that comes up is that in order for them to believe that they were the day of the Lord, 
they had to deny. They were in contradiction to what they'd been taught by Paul physically when he'd been with them. And uh, <clears throat> that is indeed part of the reason that this, that this letter is written. Paul is addressing, he's trying to clear up the misunderstandings that this second forged letter has created amongst his church, amongst God's church there in Thessalonica. And he wanted to assure, assure them then that the day of the Lord was still future. And he wanted them to have comfort and so that they would neither feel hopeless nor helpless in their situation. But I want to go back to that second point I mentioned a little bit before we go on. Uh, that is doubting something that they knew is true based on their circumstances. And I find that very puzzling. Now, I'll tell you, I've got to be really careful here <laughs> because this could almost cause me to lose focus and go down some rabbit trail. And that's what I'm about to do. So I'm reminded, this all reminded me of another instance in Scripture where conditions and a certain person's situation, let us say he was in prison, led him to a surprising admission of doubt and questioning. Anybody know where I'm going with this? John the Baptist, on the head, nailed it on the head. All right, in Matthew 11, 2, 6 is specifically uh, what I'm talking about. So let me read that, that passage to you. Matthew 11, uh, verses 2 through 6. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Christ, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Hmm. What could be the cause of such an apparent change in conviction? of John the Baptist regarding Jesus. What do you think? Uh, let me point out one thing. First of all, Jesus' first earthly ministry bared very little resemblance to Jewish anticipations, especially in regard to political and judgment aspects. Okay. You might say Jesus failed to conform to the popular messianic expectations. What were those Jewish expectations, do you think? of a coming Messiah. What were, what were they waiting for? They were Plenty of people were waiting for the Messiah to show, and he showed up on time, but what did they expect? A king. And in what, in what way? A political king. They were under the thumb, right, of uh, the Roman Empire and under the burden of all, all that went with that, taxation and the authorities and all that. What, they expected Jesus to be king, to come in and take over by revolution if necessary, right? And, what, and to bring what with him? Like judgment, right? He was supposed to be the one who was going to set everything straight. That's what they were expecting. And the, and the scriptures speak of that. It just hasn't happened yet. Okay. Now let's consider that passage again that I just read. Let's go back and read uh, they still didn't address why John the Baptist, you know, seems to have this change of heart. Let's go back to uh, uh, 
chapter 11. Let's just look at verse 2. It says, Now when John, John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. So John's not in prison and not getting any word from the outside or totally isolated such that he knows not what's going on. He's gotten word. In fact, prisons in those days would allow you to have visitors and friends that would actually bring you food and clothing and that type thing. And so he was getting word. He was getting plenty of reports from the outside, and yet he was questioning what was going on. It's interesting. Now, uh, I want to point out something else. When I was reading that uh, verse, it says, uh, Jesus answered and said to them, uh, go and report to John what you hear and see. Normally when you'd say that, go tell him, you say, go tell him what you see and hear. Jesus, for some reason, seems to re re uh, reverse the order of things, hear and see. And then he, quote, and then he says some things that are quotable out of the, out of the book of Isaiah chapter 35 and, ch and chapter 61. He's almost saying, look to Scripture first, see that I fulfill that, and then see what I'm doing. And it meshes up. Uh, and then he also closes with a strange, it's, al it's almost a beatitude at the end. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. What, in what capacity might somebody be offended at what Jesus was saying? Maybe it was a failure to meet popular expectations, expectations of immediate judgment upon the wicked and an immediate establishment of his earthly kingdom. Could it be that John the Baptist had a pretty much standard Jewish hope about Jesus, first, about his coming, that of instant judgment of the wicked? Listen to this uh, description that John the Baptist gives of Jesus before he, before he comes, where, where John was uh, baptizing in the Jordan. This is out of Matthew 3, 7 to 12, and see if it sounds like he's expecting someone to bring judgment with him. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, that's John the Baptist looking at them, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that, these, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, they couldn't depend on their birthright to be above the law. Uh, the axe is already laid at the root. The axe at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John goes on, he says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, Jesus, who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Sounds a little bit like coming judgment from God to me. Uh, anyway, it's food for thought. Any, any comments? Porter. Very good. Porter says, it could be on the personal level, how come you're leaving me in jail since I'm your cousin and you're, you're the, the, the Messiah, you know? And that's, that's worth thinking about too. Okay. 
So let's go now to the text itself, which we've already uh, read the first chapter. The salutation. The opening salutation is nearly identical to what we find in 1 Thessalonians. You remember that Paul and Silas and Timothy had been the disciples who did bring the gospel to the Thessalonians. I'll tell you, when I read these first two verses, sometimes in my mind I just put a colon when I'm reading it, and it helps me maintain the idea that Jesus of Jesus' deity. And I'll read to the church of the Thessalonians in God, colon, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, that, you know, it's God. God is both. And uh, it just I like to see Jesus' deity in that. Uh, beyond that, though, it's important to see that the letter is to the church in, in the, of, of the Thessalonians, which is in God, both the Father and the Son. And that's, that's a positional statement. And that's very important to a, to a group that was under severe persecution at the time, that positionally, no matter what their circumstance was, they were God's and they were God's church. And He has great uh, things in the future for them. Okay, now the greeting is of grace and peace. And that's a, that's a uh, opening that we see in several of the epistles of the New Testament, grace and peace. And uh, these, bo- these words, you know, how many times can you go over them? But it's important to see they are they're indeed remarkable and they are meaningful. And they're especially meaningful for those who are in need of comfort. And I believe the Thessalonian church was just that. I think these words represent God's answer to our problems really to all of our problems. Grace is important. Grace is God extending an offer of relationship with himself. It's established on the fact that Jesus died for sinners to pay our debt, which, if received, results in God's unmerited favor. I know you've heard that before. It is God giving us what we do not deserve. It's important to see that grace gives. Grace gives. Grace gives eternal life. It gives blessings, and it gives promises for joy throughout eternity. And grace is juxtaposed over against eternal judgment, which is really what we do deserve, isn't it? Uh, and we see it's, it's usually coupled, grace is coupled with peace. And there's a lot involved in that word, peace. It's true that all Christians, as believers, have peace with God. Number one, the enmity that... Uh, relationship of being an enemy that was between us and God has been removed. Also, the wrath of God, what we deserve. The wrath of God that is against us has been satisfied through Christ's sacrifice. And we're now objects of His favor. That's crazy. It's a great deal. But there's also the possibility for believers to have the peace of God. There's peace with, with God and we also have the possibility of peace of God, which is an experience of peace itself. Uh, and this is probably the peace that Paul's referring to here. It's when we realize that everything is actually right between God and us. Jesus had ma- has made it that way, that we're able to experience God's own peace in the midst of our difficult times, in the midst of our afflictions and persecutions. Paul knew uh, that this was especially important for the Thessalonians because they were indeed being persecuted so so badly. Now, when we get to three, uh, verse three, we'll see that Paul is going to highlight thanksgiving to God, and he's thanking God for the faithfulness and the endurance of these believers, which they had been demonstrating. 
The phrase that it starts with, we ought always, that phrase, we ought to, is in the new uh, NASB. It's translated bound to in the King James Version, bound to, bound to give thanks. And it carries with it a meaning of paying a debt. And Paul's saying that he owes it to them, the Thessalonians, to thank God for them always. And he's thanking God specifically for two things that are pointed up in the verse. Uh, and these things, I would say, they're practical things, but they actually undergirded this church. They kind of characterize this church. Those two things are their faith and their love. Now, focusing on their faith, Paul says that their faith was greatly enlarged. What does that mean? First, let's look at just the fact of faith. Okay, so only a few months earlier, this Thessalonian church had been formed. These Christians had come to know and believe in Christ as Savior. And it's true that from that moment, they believed. They had faith in God and in Christ. That was the fact of faith. And it's true for all Christians. But I think Paul here is going more for an experience of faith. He's speaking of faith that is greatly enlarged. In other words, meaning it had grown. How is it possible then for someone's faith to grow? Isn't Go ahead, Amy. Yes. And God is saying, taste and eat and see that the Lord is good to you. And, he is, and you're, t you're talking about your personal experience and that enlarging your faith. Anything else? That's very good. Yes, sir. And I think that's, that's exactly it. Through the trials and through the tribulations is where we learn. We learn to experience in a reality the things of God, not just in our ascension. I'm not saying that it's not so, I'm not, and I don't mean to downplay our salvation in any way. Uh, the faith, you know, that you believe that Christ died for you, that's enough for your salvation. That, you know, but there's more. God has opened up... Uh, way for a deeper experience to occur. And he allows for us to learn by those experiences and we learn to trust him in all areas by that. And that's a living God. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I know everybody in room, this room has, has experienced God in that way. And, and, it, and, and, you know, you pray. And it's not just... For big things, I mean, we, we left on a trip to take the horse down to A&M uh, Friday, and I mean, we, we made, uh, uh, made sure that we prayed to the Lord. We prayed before we got there. We thanked him for getting us there, and we thanked him, prayed before we came back, and we thanked him for getting us back. And I have no doubt that he took care of that, and that's just an experience. Anything else? Okay. And so you could probably call that spiritual education, I guess, at some level. 
And it's something, it's a, it's a degree we earn or receive in the midst of affliction and extreme trials. And this is exactly what the Thessalonians need and needed. Okay, their lives, you know, we need to stop and realize their very lives were in danger. You know, we talk about hard times here. Their lives were in danger. And in this situation, their faith was enlarging. Uh, Romans 5, 3 to 4 states this principle of growing during tribulation. Let me just read that. Romans 5, 3 to 4. It says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Okay, now Paul is also thankful for their love, for the Thessalonians' love for each other, which had grown, it says, even greater. Now, it's one thing to trust the Lord, but believers are giving evidence of obedience when they love each other because this is something Jesus commanded His disciples. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that's a sign of obedience. Now, because of the Thessalonians' enlarging faith and their growing love for each other, Paul says that he and the disciples were using them, that church, they were using them as examples to other churches. But let me just say, this wasn't your routine, everyday type, you know, my kid made the A, B, honor roll kind of an example. Now, this was more of a, have you considered my servant Job kind of example. You remember the book of Job and that in it, Satan was accusing Job before God saying that he only served God because things were going so smoothly for him. So God allows Satan to have his hand at Job. And God proved that Job's commitment was not based on material gains or easy circumstances. Instead, Job's faith was steadfast and it didn't waver in the face of trials. And this compares very well with the Thessalonians' faithful endurance uh, in the middle of their difficulties and adverse, adversities. Okay, now beginning verse 5 through 7, we're going to look, Paul is going to start to have a contrast, uh, build a contrast, and it's contrasting prospects uh, that lay ahead, okay? And he's contrasting the situation there in Thessalonica of the believers to that of their persecutors. Let me read you, starting in verse 5. Through seven, I'm going to go through 7a. It says, this is a plain indication. King James says this is a manifest token. It means it's a physical example of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Now, I'm going to say that it's, though it's not explicitly stated, there is a profound principle to be found here in these verses. And the principle is this. For the Christian, the present age is or can be a day of suffering and trial and temptation. But in the future, the glory will be ours. Indeed, this is the pattern which Jesus himself went through in his first coming 
Remember suffering first and the glory following. However, for the world, it is the cosmos, that it is that God-rejecting system of the world and the people who join in it. The unsaved, the pattern is opposite. So what does the world say? Eat, drink, and be merry. Let suffering or judgment follow. Or as one well-known Houston pastor might say, have your best life now. So suffering and trials for the Thessalonians was actually evidence of their future, which was going to be a glorious one. But the corollary of that principle is this. The very fact that these trials were caused by their persecutors was also evidence, evidence that they, the persecutors, were going to be tried in the future. They were looking forward to future judgment. This is man without Christ. And the result of all this for the Thessalonians was that because of their suffering for God's kingdom, as specifically stated, they were going to be counted as worthy for that kingdom. Verses 6 through 9 specifically address the coming judgment on the wicked. We're going to look at that in a little more detail here. I especially uh, love the verse 6, number 6, which states that it is only just for God to repay. Now, I think you can look at this verse in at least two ways. <clears throat> Maybe you see it as coming to a deduced conclusion. In other words, you see it as a, a conclusion arrived to by deductive reasoning. Uh, kind of like, based on the foregoing information, it makes sense for God to be the one to repay. That's one way of looking at it. Now, when I read it, I find it to be a bit more dogmatic, more like this. The due repayment, excuse me, the repayment due as judgment on the wicked is only just when God does it. That's really why only he can say, vengeance is mine. And because vengeance from any other person would not be just. Let me read Romans 12, 19. To go along with that, it says, Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's why my vengeance is unjust, uh, and I should leave it to God. Any comments? Okay. Now back to this coming judgment. And uh, I would point out that plainly we're told when this judgment is coming about, when it's going to occur. Let me read verses 6 through 9 again. Uh, it says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be, be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the, our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Let me just stop for a second and say, when I read this verse 9, clearly that, you know, the destiny of the lost is something that is horrible to contemplate. And this should be motivation for us to get the word out about, the, about Jesus, to get the gospel out. When we go on and read verse 10, it says, When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony uh, to you was believed. 
So verse 10, there's some additional information surrounding the timing of this future judgment of the wicked. So I just put the two verses, I put the two sections together, and, and I come up with this statement. This is verses 6, 7, 8, and 10. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's when this is going to happen. That's when the, this uh, judgment on the wicked is going to occur. So what are the possibilities for this event, this coming event of Christ, this event of Christ's coming? In other words, which event is it that we're talking about here? And I think we've got at least a couple of choices, right? And we've studied 1 Thessalonians, and we saw there's an, there's an event called the coming of Christ, and it, it is actually the removal of the church, and we know that to be the rapture. And there's also another event that's kind of more generally understood to be the second coming of Christ, and it's a coming to earth physically to set up a physical kingdom and everything that is involved with that return. Which of the two are we looking at here with regard to the coming judgment of the, of the wicked? Let me just refresh your memory a minute on the two and the differences. There are contrasts between them, and uh, they don't harmonize as the same event. Uh, I'm going to, to look at what the rapture is described as, I, I picked a couple of uh, passages. For, the first one is 1 Thessalonians, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, that is, died. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So this shows believers in Christ, in Christ, both dead and living, meeting the Lord in the air. Okay, where do they go from there? I think John 14, verses uh, 1 through 3, give us some uh, insight into that. John 14, 1 through 3, tells us where we go. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples uh, the night of his uh, the night before his crucifixion. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, which is where heaven, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to pre prepare a place for you there in his Father's house. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be in the Father's house. Okay, so that is with regard to the rapture event or the, the, the uh, uh, being caught away, the harpazo. Now, with regard to the return of Christ uh, to, to earth to set up his kingdom, I've got uh, a passage draw, uh, drawn out of Matthew 25. It's called the, uh, it's actually the judgment of the nations. 
Matthew 25, verse 31. Uh, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations, that means the non-Jews, all the Gentiles, will be gathered before Him, and He will separate, separate them one from another. As a shepherd separates sheep from the goats, He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Likewise, he addresses those on his left. He says, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they, then they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal judgment, but the righteous into eternal life. And I'll tell you, there's a similar passage in Ezekiel that addresses the Jewish uh, people uh, at the time that are living when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. And it says in there specifically that he, I will make you pass under the rod, this is to the Jews at that time, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgressed against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourned, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. And that's associated with Christ's return to set up his millennial kingdom. And it's a, it's a time, it is a time of judgment. He has to take care of judgment before he begins the inauguration of his, of his reign here on earth for a thousand years. So it's clearly a time of uh, major things happening. There's another verse in here uh, in what I read uh, from Thessalonians, and it talks about Christ being glorified in his saints. And I believe Revelation 19 gives us a very vivid illustration of that time. Uh, this is Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Christ glorified in his saints. And I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the, armies, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that it may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I would say to me, clearly, this is event that's speaking of the second coming of Christ. 
Any, any comments on that? I think we're getting close enough, and uh, in, in the letter here, I'd like to stop. This is a good point to stop, that we'll close today and, uh, and just go on. Does anyone have any, any remarks they'd like to make or comments? All right, well, it's great to see you all this morning. I'll go ahead and close us in prayer. Father, we, uh, we do thank you that uh, we have the freedom uh, to teach your word, Lord, to read your word, Lord, to just to devour it. And we pray that you would uh, wash it over us and that we would see not only uh, how it was used uh, to these people, but that we would see its uh, re relevance for us these days and that we would never be timid about seeking your face, Lord, in all things. And we know that we have uh, courage to come to you through your Son, and we know that you honor uh, our prayers in your will. We pray this this morning in Jesus Christ. Amen.